Lord, be reading uh, the book of Psalms that appeal uh, from the psalmist, Lord, do not be silent. And as we uh, come and open your word, and as we come with a sense of anticipation uh, in the worship service, our prayer is the same, O Lord, do not be silent. Uh, Lord God, we pray as we open Joshua, asking for you to shine a light on your word to illumine uh, this section of scripture, show us uh, old truths in new ways, show us your son, show us uh, how you would have us chastised or comforted. Uh, But Lord God, we pray that we would not be affected by the thoughts of men. We don't want to hear from sinful man, we long to hear from you. And so we ask, Lord God, that that would be what we know and what we experience, what we hear just now, the voice of our Creator, our Sovereign, our Redeemer, our Saviour and Friend. We pray that we would hear from you, our God. Amen. Um, At a a recent meeting of the Kirk Session of the Church, so at a recent meeting of uh, the elders at St. Peter's, Uh, What we agreed to do was to spend some uh, reasonably significant time in prayer. So a recent meeting of the elders, as we'd done previous, uh, we agreed to pray. So, yes, we prayed for you. (laughs) Of course we did. We prayed for some of the matters in the life of the church. But at this meeting recently, we decided and agreed to pray for each other. Hopefully you can see, can you, immediately that the logic in that, the sense in that. If, as a group of elders, we're going to uh, try to lead the congregation, shepherd the congregation well, you can see it's really important, isn't it, that as a group of elders that we know each other and that we care for each other, that we love each other. So what did we do at this meeting? What we did was we went around the room and uh, we spoke. And as elders, we... uh, We mentioned concerns we had in our own lives. We mentioned also struggles that we have with sin. And then we spent an an extended, a significant time praying and praying for each other. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound like a reasonable idea? Okay, in principle, but then it got to my turn. And uh, principle hit the the road, the rubber hit the road. And what was I going to say? Well, at this meeting, amongst other things... I actually asked for prayer for protection. Why? Why? A couple of reasons. Do you know, that very day, the day of the Kirk Session meeting, I've been acutely aware that we as Christians, we really are under attack. That very day, I've been acutely aware that Satan is really, truly out to get the church. That was one reason. Do you know the second reason I asked for prayer for protection? is because... I personally very often forget that reality. Very often I forget the the reality that we are in this fierce, ferocious, spiritual battle. I forget that. And do you know what? Maybe I'm not the only one. Like, is it the case that you and I sometimes are like that soldier in a sort of Vietnam war film or a World War II film? And you know that moment where the soldier's in a bunker and he is actually, he's having a great time. You know, he's playing cards and he's having a good laugh with some of his, his, his colleagues. And what's happening there? Momentarily, 
that soldier is forgetting where he is. Momentarily, he is forgetting that he is on the front lines. Is that not you? Is that not me? Occasionally, at least, in this spiritual battle we face. Well, this morning, what I think will happen in the book of Joshua is that we will be reminded that you and I are not living in peacetime. We will be reminded from Joshua that actually no armistice has been uh, signed with our spiritual foe. And that might seem grave and serious, but I think also in Joshua 10, we will be reminded that in Jesus Christ, as his bride, as his people, as his church, we have in Christ nothing to fear. So let's get into it. Can I ask you to please turn to Joshua chapter 10? Let's have this portion of scripture open from verse 16. Joshua 10. Now, first thing I want us to to note here and to see in this text is an, uh, let's call it an urgent precept or order or command, an urgent precept. It's the first thing. A while ago, a good while ago, I have to confess to watching all of the Back to the Future films. And uh, I I watched them with my youngest daughter, Juliet. Okay, watching the Back to the Future films with her. Now here's the thing about that. Though she loved those Back to the Future films, I am pretty convinced that she didn't have a clue what was going on in those films. She would now. She would get them. But this was a while ago. And you see the idea that that she was loving it. I mean, she was a big fan of Marty McFly. And she she loved the color and the cars and the noise and the action. Despite that, I'm pretty sure that she didn't have a Scooby-Doo what the the storyline of those those films. I mean, you can understand if you've seen it, there's a lot of jumping about in time, isn't there? You're one minute, you're in the past, you're in the present, and you're future. And so she's loving it. She didn't, didn't really have a clue. I actually think, really and truly, that, that there is a, there's a parallel danger for us when we're coming into Joshua chapter 10. See, what, did, what, did we, what happened last What did we see last week? Were you here? We, we saw a battle, did we? So it was a battle between an alliance of kings, wasn't it? And on the other hand, who was it? The Gibeonites and and Joshua, do we remember the battle? Now, is it fair to say this, that actually by the end of last week, that that battle had come to a kind of fitting conclusion? It had, hadn't it? That battle had come to this sort of natural conclusion, natural end. But do you notice what happens today? Like from verse 16, it's like we're pushed back into the DeLorean. Like from verse 16, it's like we've got to crank it up to 88 miles an hour. Because what happens from verse 16? Though we've got to the end of the battle, we are pushed back in time to discover what? What's the question? We're pushed back in time to find out what actually happened to those kings. Do you remember from last week, those, those five evil kings, what happened to them? Well, hang on. Do you remember where we left them? Do you remember those kings were fleeing? Weren't they running away from the people of Israel, running away from God, these, these stones being hurled down from the heavens before them? Now, what happens here? These kings, they try, do you notice in the reading, they try to hide in a cave, but they are soon discovered. So let me ask you this. Let me pause and ask you, what would you expect to happen next? 
Come on, think about it. There's these evil kings running away. They're discovered in a cave. What do you expect? I'm expecting these kings to be immediately killed, aren't you? Don't you expect them immediately to, to meet this quick and gruesome end? But that's not what happens in the text. Did you notice? Joshua actually says, no, wait a minute. Don't kill them. Joshua orders that the kings, aren't you scratching your heads? He orders that the kings be barricaded in the cave. He orders that, no, no, don't kill them. Roll stones across the mouth of the cave. Just keep these kings inside. Why? Are we asking this of the text? Why don't you? Why keep them cooped up? Why not just kill them? I tell you what. Why don't we find out? Read verse 18 and 19 with me. Why does this happen? Find verses 18 and 19. So Joshua says, don't kill them. Don't kill them yet. Don't. Roll large stones across the mouth of the cave. Look, set men to guard them. That's fine. Then he says to the people of God this. But you, don't kill them. No, you don't stay there yourselves. Don't kill them. Pursue your enemies, he says to the people. He says, don't don't bother with the kings just now. Go, pursue your enemies. Attack the rear guard. Do you see it? I mean, do do you see the, the concern here or not? Like Joshua only traps these kings because he does not want his people to get sidetracked. He doesn't want the people to get waylaid. Okay, you've discovered the kings. Great. Oh, brilliant. That's, that's fantastic. But there are still countless of your enemies fleeing in the battlefield. Did you see it? This isn't a time to take the fruit of the gas. This isn't a time to bask in your glory. Look ahead if you look. There are still plenty of skirmishes still to fight. Now let's do a little bit of time traveling of our own. Let's go back to the start of the sermon. What do we say? You, Christian friend, you and me, we are in a spiritual war, not with flesh and blood, right? We know it, with rulers and the authorities and the powers of this, this dark world. But given that that is your situation right now, do you not see something of a parallel here with your own battles against temptation and your own battles against sin? I mean, come on, you, you know what we are like. Like time and time again, you and I are tempted to take our foot off the gas, aren't we? When waging war against our temptation and waging uh, war against our sin, we do. We take our foot off the gas all the time. And it can be for all manner of reasons, can't it? Do you know, sometimes I think it's just because we're getting older. Maybe some of the more mature saints in the room would concur with me on this. What can you and I do? We can look back on times where we had such a resolve to fight particular sin in our life. And we can actually look back at great victories that we've won in the power of God. But what's happened or what can happen? We can get waylaid. We can become nonchalant as we get older. Can we become sidetracked with these things? Or do you know what? Sometimes it can actually come with the victories we have. Do do you see what I'm mean? We have seen ourselves, in God's power, defeat certain particular sins in our life. And what do we do at that point? We do this. We bask in the glory. We, you and I, sometimes, we dwell at the mouth of the cave of mortified sin, and we dwell there for too long, rather than pursuing with all of our might our enemy. Like, do you see it? You look at Joshua 10. What do you see but a mirror? 
It's a reflection of our tendency, our tendency to take our foot off the gas. And so do we this morning at St. Peter's. Do we not hear the voice of God? Because what is this? What is said here, verse 19? Do we, does God not say the same to us? Don't stay there. Does God not say to us, pursue your enemy. Get back in the battlefield. Pursue them. And don't miss what he goes on to say. For the Lord your God has given them into your hands. Friends, let's not take our foot off the gas. Let's not get sidetracked in the power of God, in the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit of God. Let's continue that pursuit of this sin in our lives. So we see an urgent preset. Second thing we see this morning is an enacted parable. We see an enacted parable. Okay, so that was scene one in this section of Scripture. What about scene two? Well, um, these people obey Joshua. He said, go chase your enemy. They do, they slaughter the enemy. But maybe you notice there is then a return to this cave. There's a return to the cave. And it all becomes, at this point, very, very ceremonial. Now, do you see what I mean by that? So what Joshua does is he actually gathers all of Israel to this cave. And Joshua speaks to all of Israel. Now, this is what he does. He commands that the stones at this point be removed away from the cave. And Joshua orders that, remember those five kings? Joshua commands that those kings be dragged out of that cave and that they be thrown to the ground, thrown in the dust. Now, friends, please, if I call what happens next an enacted parable, are you with me? An enacted parable, what happens next? See, I think we're all familiar with the idea of prophets in the Old Testament, not just bringing a message from God and speaking a message of God, but I'm sure we're all probably familiar, even the younger people in here, you're familiar with sometimes prophets actually acted out a message from God. We all know that, don't we? So that, yes, they would speak most commonly a message from God, but sometimes they would actually, there'd be a sign act. They would act out a message. Can you think of examples? Sure that some come to your mind right now, do they? What about Jeremiah? Do you remember? Jeremiah takes a jar and smashes it on the ground. Why? to speak of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Do you see it's a sign act? Or what about Ezekiel? Ezekiel, he lies on his side for ages and ages to convey a message to the people of God. Everybody gets the idea. Do you you see it? Not just bringing a message, speaking a message, but actually acting out a sign act. Well, is that not similar to what happens here? Did, Did you notice the details? The kings are on the dirt. What does Joshua do? Do you notice? At this point, Joshua commands that his military generals come forward. And he says to the military generals, come forward to these kings. And he, Joshua, orders that these military chiefs, they take their feet and they place their feet on the necks of these five individual kings. Do you get the picture? Do you see the picture? Their feet on the necks of these kings. Kings, now, everybody in the room, I mean, all of us, 
we understand that this is a picture of dominance or victory, but, but I'm asking you, what exactly is it that God is saying through this action? What is he saying? What is God's message here? Would you allow me to suggest that we learn two lessons? First, this feet or neck is a way of encouraging the people of God, encouraging the people of God. I'm looking around this morning, and though you've got your masks on, um, I'm pretty sure I can recognize most of you at this stage. What does that tell me? That tells me that most of you have been here for the majority of the sermon series in the book of Joshua. That's probably true, isn't it? Most of you have been here for, some of you won't have, most of you have been for the majority. So, so you'll know the answer to this. Has this conquest in Joshua, has it been all plain sailing? It's not all been plain sailing, has it? Yes, there's been great times and great victories like that at Jericho, but there's been also times like AI, and there are tough times. And what I need you to appreciate right now in the book of Joshua, the people are on the verge of a massive campaign. Do you appreciate that? So at this point in time, the, the people are faced with taking all of the southern part of the promised land. And so can you see it? Can you see what Joshua's doing? By having these feet placed on necks, he is encouraging the people of God for the battles that lie ahead. Do you see it? This is a visual aid for the people. This is an object lesson saying to them, because God is with you. God is with you. So victory in the south, it is absolutely guaranteed. And if you will do this for me, if you'll look at verse 25, you will see that confirmed. Look at verse 25. He says, put the feet on the neck of your enemies. And then notice it. Be, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. And then he says, for thus. Look at the feet and the neck. For thus the Lord will do for all of your enemies. Do you see? It is a way of encouraging the people of God. But hang on. What did I say? I said in this enacted parable, there were two lessons for us at St. Peter's. For this one, I'm going, to need your, I'm going to need your help, your involvement. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to another portion of Scripture. I was going to ask the people on the screen to do it, but I forgot. <laughs> so you're going to have to do it yourselves. If you would turn to Genesis uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 15, please do that. Genesis three fifteen. I think we know where it is in the Bible. So Genesis three fifteen. Now, as you turn there, let me remind you of what we have spoken about before. Previously, we have spoken about ways of interpreting the Bible. So previously, we've talked about big meta-narratives and threads that run all the way through the Bible, from Genesis right through to Revelation. Covenant is a big one, and kingdom restoration. We know these, don't we? These big meta-narratives in your hands right here, Genesis 3, what we find is another theme that runs right from this point, right the way through the Bible, and it is this, the theme of, wait for it, get it, it is the theme of two seed. Two seed. What do I mean? Look down at Genesis 3.15. And we all know the context, we know the, the story, we know the fall. Oh, look at that. Thank you for the people on the screens. That's tremendous. Look at that. Look at this. Now, we know that there's curses. What does God say here 
to Satan. I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, he says to Satan, and then, listen, and between your offspring and hers. Now stop there. Now listen to it. Think about it. I will put enmity between your offspring and hers. Do you see what's been promised? What has been promised is something of a division of all of humanity. Do do you see? Like all of people, all of humanity divided into those who are called by God and loved by God and following God and those who will be opposed to God and opposed to his church. Do you see it? Two seeds? Now think about it. It runs its way through Genesis, doesn't it? The line of Cain, Nabal. Isn't it Shem and Ham and Ishmael and Isaac? And it goes through Scripture, this line of two seed, and it goes through to St. Peter's and to Dundee right now. Now, since you know your Bible, what has been the great hope of the people of God since the very beginning of time? Our great hope is what? That one day, what is it? A singular seed would rise up. A saviour would come. And now I ask you to look at Genesis 3.15 and see the language. Read the last bit of it. To rescue his people, what would this Savior come and do? Do you see it? He will crush what? His enemy's head. I'll say it again. He will crush his enemy's head. Do you not see it? In this enacted parable with Joshua, of all people, and his chiefs with their feet in the neck of their foe, what do we witness in Joshua chapter 10? But we see a type, a figure of the victory. One day the greater Joshua would win. Yes, Christ would come one day. Yes, Christ Jesus would strike Satan a fatal blow. But what is your reality? What is our reality? As I speak to you, what is happening spiritually in this war? What does 1 Corinthians 15 say? God has placed Christ's enemies under his feet. Today, this enacted parable is real and it's true that our enemy is subdued. Today, Christ Jesus reigns. And if you are a Christian in this room this morning, I hope you see a message in this for you. It is not just the ancient people of Israel that should be encouraged by this enacted parable. You should be encouraged this morning. Because yes, you are in a fight. You are in warfare. But the outcome of that is assured. Christ Jesus has acted. He has done all. And now these words of this chapter are applicable to us at St. Peter's. What are they? Christ has done all. His foot is on the neck of his foe. Thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies. Or what does Paul say in Romans 16? Christ has done all. Christ has done it. He has trampled down his foe. And Paul says to the church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Surely it is not just the ancient people of God, but surely it is St. Peter's free church that is encouraged in this inactive parable. So we've seen an urgent precept, and we've seen an inactive parable. And then thirdly, and lastly, 
we see an obvious parallel, an obvious parallel. I was thinking uh, earlier on uh, today that the idea of fast-forwarding or rewinding music or, or a film is becoming a really antiquated idea, isn't it? Fast-forwarding or rewinding. I spent my youth uh, rewinding tapes, fast-forwarding tapes, and the young'uns of today, uh, they probably will never, ever do that, rewinding or fast-forwarding a tape. Regardless, I'm sure everyone in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about, knows exactly what I mean, and that is important, because in a way, that is what happens here. Now, do, do you follow what I mean? Do you? Like, from the book of Joshua, moving along at a certain pace, as we come to the end of this chapter, it is almost as though God comes down and presses fast forward in this book of Joshua. Do you notice, do you notice that? That from recounting the battles in great detail throughout this book, all of a sudden, what we find is that southern campaign, and it's just is recorded in just in a wonder. Did you notice it at the end of the chapter? It's like city after city, people after people, they're, they're destroyed, they're annihilated. Why are they destroyed? Please, friends, don't lose sight of it. Why is there annihilation? Why is there destruction? It's not just because these people are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Why is it? It's because of their wickedness, isn't it? It's because of their evil. It's because of their rejection of God, the rebellion against God. It's because of centuries of stubborn refusal to turn from outright evil and to turn to God in repentance of their sin. That's why they're called. Do you see it? Almost in the blink of an eye, that southern campaign, it's not just a, the victory is not just assured, it is accomplished. But hang on a second. What have we forgotten? We've forgotten the kings. We left them, didn't we, a moment ago in the dirt and the ground with a, a food on their neck? But that's not the end of the story. Do you notice what happens here? After that humiliation, Joshua does get around to killing them. Let's get the details right. So he slays the five kings, doesn't he? And then he proceeds to hang these kings from five individual trees. Why? Remember it from a couple of weeks ago. Can you? Why hang them from the trees? Do we recall? Partly as a deterrent, you see? What was the other part of it? Part of a sign of God's curse on their lives, wasn't it? And they are left up there till evening, brought down at evening, lest the land be polluted. And then what happens to these kings? Their lifeless bodies of these five kings, they are taken and they are put in a cave and these stone rolled across. Now we're looking at this and it seems gruesome and detailed perhaps, but what are we to think? What is the lesson that, that you and I are to take from all of this? Well, dare I suggest to you this morning that what we see in that Oh, it is a picture of, the, of how, how Christ has won victory for you and for me. I mean, if we have a moment ago and see the, the fact that Christ has won victory, we've seen that he has won a victory. Do we not see now and here how the Lord Jesus Christ has done it? 
I mean, Christian friends, first of all, just think about the similarities with Christ's work here. I mean, you see them, don't you? You think about it just as those kings endured, oh, humiliation and death. What did Christ Jesus endure for you? You know, by being ridiculed and being tortured and exposed, he endured shame and death like these kings. And just as these kings, they were hung up, as we say, on these these trees, what about the Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, don't you see? He was also in death publicly displayed. Why? As a sign of God's curse upon Jesus in his death. What does Peter say to you? Points to Jesus Christ as he himself bore our sins in his body. Where? Where? On the tree, the Lord Jesus Christ pierced in his side that he would not be hung up overnight. Do you see it? And then what? Like these kings thrown away into a cave. What about your Lord? Do you not see it? Like these kings, the Lord Jesus Christ brought down from the tree, carried off, put into a cave, cut out from the rock with a stone also rolled across the entrance of this tomb. You you see the similarities, don't you, Christian friend? But we look at this and say, well, how is that a victory? Because if you see the similarities, you also see the difference, don't you? How does this king's story end? I can say to you, it ends in a whimper. Because what does the text underline for you? They're still there. They're still in the cave. They're dead lying there. The stone's still in front of that cave. And you, Christian friend, this morning, you know, oh, it's very, very different with the Lord Jesus Christ. What has happened with the true king? What has happened with our king, the king of kings? We know, don't we, that the stone there was rolled away from his tomb, don't we? We know that our king, the king of kings, he's not left there dead. That our king, he walks out of that tomb. He walks out into the light. He walks out victorious, triumphant, over death, over Satan, over sin. And so if you are a Christian this morning, should you not be filled with confidence for this this warfare you have with sin and temptation because your king is living and your king goes with you into the battlefield even this week. But what if you're not a believer? What if you're just visiting perhaps? Maybe you've been here for a long, long time. What if you're tuning in on YouTube today and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Listen to me as I close. I want you to understand if you're not a Christian, the world is trying to sell you a lie right now, today. The world will do everything to try and convince you that sin is not serious. Everything in the world exists to try and manipulate you, to show you, to convey to you the message, your sin is not serious, your sin is not a big deal. I urge you to hear this, that justice these kings were held up on those trees with a very profound message as a deterrent. I would urge you this morning to consider the cross of Jesus Christ. Consider that tree. Think about it. Look at the cross. Consider the cross. Sin is so serious to God. It has taken 
the death of his only beloved son to atone for sin. Your sin could not be more serious. It is serious in the eyes of God. And so if you are not a Christian, I urge you to run to the only one who can deal with your sin, who can do anything about this, the only one who can forgive you, the only one who can save you, run to Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus Christ. For who is he? Son of God? Yes. Who is he? He's the savior of sinners, the friend of sinners. Who is Jesus Christ? He's our savior and Lord. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the seed of the woman who has crushed his enemy's head. Run to Christ for salvation. Friends, let's pray. Lord our God, we, we praise you for grace. And Lord God, you are so patient with us. We are a people who take our feet off the gas. Uh, we become nonchalant, sidetracked when it comes to fighting our sin. But Lord, we thank you that you have taken your foot and you have placed it on the neck of the serpent of the evil one. Lord God, we thank you that you have secured victory against our, our great foe. We thank you and we praise you that you have atoned for our sin. And we praise you on this Lord's day, on the first day of the week, we praise you that you are raised, resurrected, that you live victorious. O oh Lord God, bring more and more people to yourself that your name might be honored, glorified, and praised. And we pray these things in that matchless name of Jesus. Amen.